This is an ABC podcast. G'day, welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. On the show today, we're going to hear a different perspective on investment in water. Corporate ownership of water rights is a hotly contested topic, but one Australian company has found a way to do it that helps the environment as well as provide a financial return to investors. get there. Let's get a wrap on this week's rural news and Kath McAloon is here to help us get across that. Good morning, Kath. Good morning, Clint. As to be expected with harvest ramping up to full speed, we had a couple of stories with angles on the impact of the La Nina-driven wet spring. Yes, combine those wet conditions with some warmer days and you've got perfect conditions for breeding of nasty pests and crop diseases. Think things like mould in crops. It's turning out to be quite a concern for some canola growers in New South Wales. They're discovering that they've got quite a bit of mould in their crops, just what they need at this, (laughs) what is already a really stressful time of year around harvest time and then with these continuing wet days that we're having. It's a massive blow for some farmers who were expecting to harvest one of their best canola crops on record. Um, We've also seen in recent weeks that the Australian Oil Seed Federation has had to increase the tolerance for mould in the seed. Um, If they applied the usual standards that they normally apply to canola crops, a lot of this year's crop would have been rejected. Normally, Australian canola is pretty much um, top grade, mostly in the top grade, but this year more is expected to fall into a lower seasonal grade that's been introduced uh, given the season that we've had. Southern Riverina grain merchant Matt Kelly says in addition to mould, they're also expecting that yields will be down this year too. I think more the, the main um, disappointment is probably using that, that losing that um, you know, potential uh, yield um, you know, that a lot of crops and a lot of people are expecting some of the best canola crops ever and then obviously uh, with the weather we've had just losing some just due to flooding so we'd expect probably on the potential we're probably at least back 20% of, of what people were expecting um, you know, a couple of months ago. The companies that receive the grain also have thresholds for how much moisture the crop is allowed to have and one farmer's taking advantage of an interstate arbitrage opportunity in those limits. Yeah, a farmer in the Victorian Mallee is sending his grain 100 kilometres across the border into South Australia so that he can deliver at a higher moisture than what's being accepted at Victorian sites. So Graincore, one of the biggest uh, grain receival companies, they apply a 12% moisture tolerance cutoff for cereals that they take in, in line with Grain Trade Australia standards, while South Australian receivals can have a 13.5% tolerance. So that 1% can make <laughs> a big difference to a farmer. It's uh, been a really tough time for them with cold and damp conditions. And Ross Stone, who farms at Wolpeup, just a little bit south of Mildura, says that those conditions are seriously limiting the harvest hours as farmers have to wait each morning for the moisture to come down. So normally they'd be out there sort of at the crack of dawn, getting off as much of the crop as they can. But um, with these colder mornings, it's been a bit of a slower start to harvest each day. We're having the 
bit of an unusual harvest for the Mallee, cold, damp conditions. Headers sort of haven't been able to get going until near midday. Um, the moisture comes up overnight and slowly drops down as the day goes on and then comes up again the next night. So, you know, traditionally we could have harvesters going 24-7, but this year just the, the damp, cold conditions, yeah, moisture's the limiting factor on us getting our crop off. I was talking to an agronomist in northern New South Wales just about what things were looking up there. It was uh, national news when kind of a lot of water passed around that area of Moree and Walgett, and he was pretty much saying on the side of the Newell Highway, the uh, eastern side, where it's a bit more sloped, then things are looking good and harvest is underway, even though a couple of people are getting bogged. Mm. But on that flatter plain, a lot of uh, crops have been wiped out, so it's a bit of a sad situation the more west you go. Absolutely. Um, And it's interesting too because you think about the impact on crops, but it's not just that, it's the logistics as well, isn't it? It's getting that heavy machinery (laughs) onto wet ground. It's really causing headaches for harvest across the country. But as you say, things are looking better as you head further west across the country. Um, In South Australia, harvest is in full swing and the grain handler there, Viterra, has already um, waved goodbye to its first export vessel back last month and now two more have been loaded this week. So some real movement in Mm. South Australia. And WA, it's really been uh, the shining light of this year's harvest. They've had much better weather conditions and have received 7 million tonnes by last Monday. So I guess that's the bright spot of uh, grain farming across the country uh, at the moment. WA Big State always comes through with the harvest. (laughs) Hey, Kath, this next story is pretty much brimming with good Christmas tidings. Yeah, well, Christmas really is a time for family reunions, and we love a family reunion story (laughs) at this time of year. Um, When Albert Chan boarded a flight from Tonga to Australia back in April 2021, he never imagined that what he'd signed up for uh, six months of seasonal work would turn into being away from home for almost two years. He says it's the longest time he's ever spent away from his home country. Um, He sort of has got through pandemic border closures and then he lost contact with his family during a volcanic eruption back in Tonga. But now finally this month, he and thousands of other Tongan nationals who came out to do seasonal work in Australia finally get to fly home. It's been a really difficult period of separation. Mm. He wasn't able to get in contact with his family for some time after that um, volcano and tsunami in Tonga. He's been working for the Costa Group in South Australia's Riverland and he also did a spell picking berries for the group in Tassie when um, he had to stay on in Australia. He says he's just really itching now to get back home. Pretty exciting. Looking forward to uh, see the families for like over a year and a half now, almost two years, and the beaches, swimming, because we live in an island, we always swim every day. (laughs) Normally when we uh, go back home, the families will prepare seafood. Yeah, normally they get like octopus, um, oyster, lobster. Yeah, they get like those kind of food. Yeah, fish, big one, raw fish. Sounds delicious. Yeah. And the next couple of stories are actually all to do with food as we take a whip through the aisles of the supermarket. Let's start in the meat section. 
Yeah, Coles Supermarkets is expanding its carbon neutral beef range. Customers in New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania will now be able to purchase the carbon neutral beef. The new products were launched in Sydney earlier this week. They've been available in Victoria for some months now. And we wouldn't normally uh, sort of talk about a new product launch from a major supermarket here at Auntie, but this is notable because listeners will know that we've spoken a lot about the climate neutral um, objectives of various agricultural industries, mm. but particularly the red meat industry here in Australia. Uh, Daniel Matthey is a cattle producer from Holbrook in southern New South Wales. He's a supplier of this product for Coles, and he explains um, how he's made his farm carbon neutral. We've planted a lot of trees. These have the dual advantage of offsetting emissions as well as providing shade for the herd and preventing erosion. Uh, we've implemented best practice soil and pasture management to increase the amount of carbon we're storing in the soil. So soil testing paddocks, applying the appropriate uh, nutrients that are required for those paddocks. Pasture management is targeted rotational grazing, uh, leaving the correct residual ground cover, putting more area into perennial pastures, so there's more green feed, more time of the year. Going, going an extra effort to get the best cattle genetics available to increase herd productivity. Uh, we've installed multiple solar panels for farm electricity use, including pumping water to our cattle. We've got about 50 kilowatts of panels. It's quite a lot of measures to bring the beef into carbon-neutral territory, but let's stay in the supermarket and wander over into fresh produce where recent history is repeating itself. Yeah, they're calling it an avo-lanch. After a mass <laughs> dumping of fruit earlier this year, avocado growers are bracing for yet another year of oversupply, and this is off the back of increased production and another big flowering uh, for the industry. Last year, when Aussie farmers begged consumers to start eating more avocado, avocados, they really stepped up and literally smashed it, I guess you'd say. <laughs> but there are fears that this won't be enough uh, this year to absorb the next uh, big glut of avocados that we're they're predicted. Um, they're, we see, we're seeing prices drop really low. You've probably mm. seen in the supermarket, they got down to a dollar uh, per piece of fruit, which is just not a sustainable price for producers. Avocados Australia Chief Executive John Tyus says... It's all because of uh, just all the huge plantings they've had in recent years. So there are now 4 million avocado trees in the ground in Australia, and that's compared to 1.5 million just 10 years ago. We go through a process of um, working out an average wholesale price each year. Last year it was around $17 a tray, which is really, really low. That's really below the cost of, of production. But previously, it's been up to around, you know, $38, $40 a tray. So it's been a, it's a, been a big change and, you know, long term, it'll, it'll prove to be a good thing for the industry because it'll grow consumption. But, you know, the Australian growers can't supply at that price. It's just, it's just unsustainable. Now, I'm a big fan of mangoes and this season it feels like they've been pretty cheap and very plentiful. Yeah, they've been they've been yummy too. I've had some rippers in recent weeks, and you might have noticed uh, as you've been in the supermarket and fruit shop that there's an increasing number of mango varieties for sale. So, in among those well-known varieties like Kensington Pride, R2E2, and Calypso, there's a wave of new varieties with different colours and flavours that are starting to come to market now. I've always been pretty loyal to the Kensington yeah, Pride yeah. for flavour, <laughs> but I do like the look of the Calypso. They're pretty. 
mango to look mm-hmm. at with that sort of pink blush. Well, now um, company Perfection Fresh is rolling out some new varieties. Uh, one's called the Scarlet Delight. There's also the Hula. They're currently growing on farms in the Northern Territory and far north Queensland. And the CEO, Michael Simonetta, says that these new varieties originate from Israel. Yeah, the Scarlet Delight is probably the most distinctive of the two because it's got that deep red scarlet skin colour. I describe it as having an aromatic flavour. I taste a mixture of like peach and nectarine hints uh, in the flavour. Hula, I can, I always describe it as a Kensington Pride lookalike. It has a different flavour profile to Kensington Pride. It's a more traditional mango flavour, but it's not quite as sweet as Scarlet Delight. Scarlet Delight sounds all right. Yeah, I'll I'll try that for sure. (laughs) It's like the most novel step in mangoes. (laughs) Kath, we probably won't find this next one in too many supermarkets because I reckon it's something you'd find more often on on a plate at an expensive degustation type restaurant. Yeah, finger limes are pretty fancy. They're they're (laughs) known as the citrus caviar, so that kind of explains it for you. And they're becoming increasingly popular, but you're right, they're not exactly your sort of staple items as, you know, your regular lemons and oranges (laughs) and that sort of thing. In fact, at the moment, only about 100 tonnes are produced each year, so fairly small in comparison to other citrus fruits. But um, they might have a big future. AgriFutures has released a five-year plan to help develop the fingerline sector further as it faces competitions from countries that are also trying to develop their own industry with this yummy native Australian fruit. And so uh, Dr Olivia Reynolds is the Senior Manager of Emerging Industries at AgriFutures and she says while the industry has grown exponentially, um, to take it further they really need to form an industry body. The farm gate value has grown from about 600,000 per annum in 2012 to over 3 million in 2020. So really exciting growth there. Retail prices range from about $50 to about $120 a kilogram. The export market at the moment is larger than the local market as Australian consumers are still familiarising themselves with um, how to use native finger lime in its different forms. They have certainly have a unique taste. They're high in antioxidants and have a range of um, really appealing properties such as high in folate, potassium, vitamin C and vitamin E. It would be a crying shame if a native fruit became more popular as an industry overseas than here in Australia. Well, we've seen it happen with other products like macadamia, so we really do need to get in there, get ahead of the finger lime curve. (laughs) Kath Macklin, thank you very much for that wrap of Rural News this week. Thanks, Clint. One summer... What a cluster of fields around the batsman. Every summer. One of the great things about the ABC is turning the radio on in the summer and hearing the cricket coverage. And it's been going for 90 years. This has been a sensational innings. Everlasting Summer is a six-part series that tells the story of cricket on the ABC from Bodyline to Big Bash. OMG, that went a mile. Everlasting Summer. Hear every episode now on the ABC Listen app.
This week, we're checking in on the grain harvest that's kicked off along the Queensland-New South Wales border. We'll meet some of the crew of seasonal workers who've stepped away from their regular lives to help get the crop off. We're also headed to the coast where scientists are studying migrating whales and hoping to better understand just what the giants of the sea can hear. And we'll also visit an unlikely farm. It's wedged between apartment blocks in a regional city and it's growing fruit and herbs that will end up in drinks served at a neighbouring distillery and pub. When Ryan suggested the idea to put a 10-row passion fruit farm in the middle of the Wollongong CBD, at first I thought it was uh, a joke. A couple of days later I realised he was completely serious. A few days later I started to really dawn on me that it was a a great ingenious idea. Passion fruit is actually quite high yielding, so we're hoping we can grow enough to suit our needs just on these 10 rows. The quirky idea that's bearing fruit for a regional distiller and publican. That story is coming up. First today, we're heading underground. Reporter Meg Powell is visiting a formerly mothballed mine in Tasmania that's been given a second life thanks to the growing global demand for electric vehicles. I'm 200 metres underground, in the belly of a newly reopened mine on Tasmania's west coast. It's dark and noisy. And in front of me, there's two men who have been drilling for hours through solid rock, digging tunnels to get closer to the treasure they're hunting for, nickel. They've been working here for about a month now, ever since the mine reopened after 13 years in care and maintenance mode. Joseph, it's Meg. How are you? Oh, you're all good, mate. Oh, <laughs> that's your I'll shake, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He doesn't do anything, mate. So, I'm just yeah, yeah, yeah. so we're heading um, down the side of the mine, which they call the Avebury side of the mine. There's two sides of the mine at the moment. It's the Avebury and the Viking, right. both potatoes. This is Pippi, not his real name. He manages the workers who go underground. I try and spend as much time as I can down here. This is this is where I like being. This is um, yeah, I like being down with the with the work work groups. So um, I really only go to surface uh, by default if I need to go for meetings or do any um, do anything in the office basically. But I, I prefer to spend most of my time down on the ground, the underground. I'd say that's pretty unusual. Um, I hear that a fair bit from for a mine manager. I spend too much time underground. Some people could say, but. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, uh, again, I can remember when I when I started out around some belt tin mine. I started as an apprentice, and um, I would have only been 17, 18 then. And I remember going to the portal and watching the miners come out in the shift, and thinking that's where I want to be. My family were all miners. My father, my elder brothers were miners. My grandfather was a miner, so it was certainly <laughs> certainly in the blood, if you like. So um, yeah, yeah, I said I. Um, Started. Yeah, I'm not swinging a sheet of mesh for visitors here. Not, not in this crap. It's only audio, so don't just Yeah. I'll just close that door, mate. Yeah, thanks. There you go, how about that? We're outside the shafts now, standing at the portal. It's surrounded by dense bush, birds, and in the distance, the sound of the ocean. I didn't expect it to be so peaceful out here. Yeah, it is. Like I said, it's, um, it's a beautiful spot. And I said the footprint of the mine is quite small. It gets a little bit noisy with machines coming in and out of the mine from time to time, but apart from that, yeah, it's pretty pristine. Now, Pippi, you were, you're, you're from Zan. Were you born yeah. in Queenstown? Yeah, born in Queenstown. I lived in Zan um, all my life. 
give or take a little bit of time away working over the mainland, but uh, most of it in Tasmania and majority of it around uh, Ransom Bell Tin Mine, which I came over uh, to Avery about a year and a half ago from, so to this start-up. The opportunity arose to um, do a restart here, which is pretty important for the community, the community I grew up in, so I thought it would be a good challenge to take on. My name's Dale Colson and I'm a local, I live in Zoom and I'm here as a process operator for the Avery Nickel Mine. How long have you lived in Zeehan for? All my life. I was born here. Yeah, love the place. Local through and through. That's it, yep. So you started with Avebury Mine back before it was Avebury Mine? Yeah, I started here in 2007, 8 or something. When it was, it was out here on commissioning and we helped actually set the place up, ready to operate. I used to be at the Renison Mine on and off over the years. We've Every, it used to shut down every now and then. So and then in between that, a bit of anything. But this is great, yeah. You set up the Avebury mine back in the 2000s and then it went into care and maintenance mode and you stayed on with a few other people. Could you tell me a bit about that time? Yeah, with the care and maintenance situation, our fuels have kept on to finish cleaning up around the place and uh, maintain underground pumps and stuff like that water, environmental issues, and it's looking really good. It's great to see it happening again. We've been waiting for a while. You yeah. must have been getting a bit cynical watching people come and then not do anything. There was a few tyre kickers, yes, uh, so to speak. There was numerous times saying we will be starting up, and it never ever happened. So uh, as it turned out, we just was part of the furniture, <laughs> and we're still here. Shuttles and... <laughs> yeah, yeah. For Dale, the mine's reopening is something like a symbol of hope for the declining town he has lived in and loved his whole life. It was good because we knew we were going to be a bit more secure um, and the town itself, it was a buzz, as you can imagine. People were asking questions left, right and centre sometimes, you know, it was, uh, sometimes you try to avoid a few, but in the end when we finally got a bit more confirmation we could tell them straight out, it's looking really good, the start-up will be happening. How did people react when you could finally say that? Uh, it, was, it was great, it was great. The whole town was a buzz because it was pretty quiet for quite a while, the little town, and uh, this has definitely boosted things up. I don't know if you know much about the housing and that in Zoom, but it's pretty hard to get a property in here at the moment because people have gobbled them up. It's, it's all happening, yeah. It must feel quite different, not only here in the mine, but in Zoom. Yeah, there's a lot of new faces as people moved into the town. Don't know them all, never, never will probably, but it's definitely improved and uh, she's really building up. That way we tend to keep your um, businesses and that alive. Your, your other things like your chemists, your medical centres and all them, they tend to stay on board. Whereas, you know, when towns fold, so does all this. And then people have got a hassle of travelling and finding alternative um, ways of looking after things. So, no, this is great. It's really building up. The central business district in the regional city of Wollongong is not where you'd expect to find a farm. But distiller Jared Smith and publican Ryan Atchison have successfully turned an old car wash and gravel car park into a productive plot growing native Australian plants. There's a few reasons why the farm's super exciting. One is to showcase Australian native edibles, which is something I'm really passionate about. So growing things like native thyme, native juniper, strawberry gum, allows us to be really creative with our garnish offerings, but also incorporate them into our alcoholic products. 
So we've got traditional and also native juniper, so people can come on a bit of an educational tour of the ingredients that go into different alcohols. We've got native thyme, river mint, strawberry gum, lily pillies, native ginger, and, and more, yeah. What were you thinking about when you were choosing those plants? Is it uh, how useful they could be in, in your operation here? Yeah, something a little bit different so that we're, when we're um, doing a cocktail, for instance, we could put in a sprig of native thyme, light it on fire and have a clear ice cube and really have an elevated drink experience. G'day, I'm Justin Hunsdale. I'm chatting with Jared Smith about the urban farm he's helped set up on a main road in this city in the New South Wales Illawarra region. The green patch, with rows of passion fruit vines and edible native plants, is surrounded by high-rise apartment blocks. The concept was Ryan's brainchild, and one Jared was initially unsure about. When Ryan suggested the idea to put a 10-row passion fruit farm in the middle of the Wollongong CBD, at first I thought it was uh, a joke. A couple of days later I realised he was completely serious. A few days later, I started to really dawn on me that it was a a great ingenious idea. Passion fruit is actually quite high yielding, so we're hoping we can grow enough to suit our needs just on these 10 rows. It's taken a lot of man hours to get it from a a kind of like a rubble-filled patch to what it is at the moment, but we're still still going. So hit by a lot of bad weather um, over the, the hot summer, then the floods, and then the wind. Um, and it's just starting to come together now, so we're really excited for the, this, the growth through this season and what's to come next year. G'day, my name is Ryan Aitchison, Director of Smith Street Distillery, publican of the Illawarra Hotel. It's more about saying, right, how do we, how do we get creative in making it commercially viable to spend a lot of time and a bit of money in doing things well and truly above and beyond what anyone in the industry is doing. To me it's becoming quite cliche for a venue to put a few solar panels on and say we're at the forefront of sustainability and you know we think that so much more can be done. We're not just out to, to say it, we're out to, to prove it. The thought behind creating a a distillery was obviously financially it can sustain a really cool urban farm but also they both complement each other and it's as a three-way kind of setup as well complementing the pub you know in being able to produce a lot of the stuff that we serve here as well. As well as growing garnishes for cocktails and ingredients for distilling this urban farm also processes a huge amount of organic food waste from local cafes and pubs through an in-ground composting system. Well, you can thank my mum for the strategy we use here because what she still does is she, instead of waiting for compost to, to cure and that, and you know, it takes months and months, what she does is put, puts bins in, in her gardens and lets it leach and turns them into quite large worm farms. And that means that we can process about 500 litres of, of compost a week and we keep topping these bins up, giving them a stir, and then when we fill them all up, we just get more, more and more bins. We've got plenty of garden space. So the, the strategy we've got here means that we can take on a heck of a lot, but also we see, we see the upside straight away. You know, you can see all the plants around the bins, you know, they're just, they've gone crazy. We can't keep up um, to the extent that we can't even get to the bins because they've completely gone around them. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting journey, um, having no formal training and just relying on advice. 
we've got so much more to learn, but even stuff we've learnt so far showing um, quite seasoned people how we're doing it, even they're scratching their head and going, hey, that's a really good way of doing it. We're creating a case study here to say this is what we're doing, this is the amount of time and money it takes, but have a look at the upside that we've received to our business, you know, because people really do care. When we're behind the bar or anywhere and we talk to our customers, let them know exactly where their products are coming from and how it's got onto their plate and from the sustainability standpoint, they're on the edge of their seat, you know. We've instantly engaged with them because it's becoming more of a thing where you can't just be sustainable when it's convenient. We all need to get creative and say, right, I don't care what our business is, what can we do outside of the box to to minimise and, you know, even go the other way. How do we have a positive impact on the environment through running our business? So that's what we're out there to create some really good anecdotal evidence that it works and that, yep, you will see an upside to your business because look at us. Publican Ryan Aitchinson, he was speaking to reporter Justin Huntsdale about his urban farm in the central business district of Wollongong in the New South Wales Illawarra region. For more on that story, head online to the RN homepage where you can see photos of the farm and what's growing there. That's at abc.net.au slash rn. You are listening to Country Breakfast on RN. I'm Clint Jasper and still to come, whales are known for the sound of their song. Now scientists on Queensland's Sunshine Coast are studying their ability to here. And swapping the surfboard for the tractor cab, we'll meet some of the young workers helping out with this year's grain harvest. Hello, my name's Avalon Newman and I am from Cos Harbour, the mid-north coast of New South Wales. And now I'm in Moree, so and I'm a farmhand working on a farm. <laughs> Each year, as the grain harvest kicks off along the New South Wales-Queensland border, an unlikely crew of workers step away from their lives to help. And this year, Avalon Newman is one of them. She's made the trek from the coast out west to work on a farm and help with the harvest of crops like wheat, barley and chickpeas. So I was just randomly scrolling through Instagram one day. I've been watching some videos on social media. I was like, oh, seeing some video, like harvest videos on TikTok. I was like, that looks awesome. That looks amazing. I want to be there. How do I do that? And it, quite, it is quite hard finding someone to help you get out there. And I was just scrolling through Instagram one day. I came up across Seasonal Work Oz. And it was just this young girl had an account and she was just trying to get young people out west. And, um, yeah, I thought it was too good to be true. And she said there was no resume needed, no work needed, no experience, nothing. It was just it sounded too good to be true, just hand, a job handed to you straight away. Yeah, it just sounded so convincing to get out here. So... I literally packed my bag, two days later, came out to Maury, never been here before, and um, yeah, stayed ever since. Hello, I'm Alice Marshall, and I'm here in Moree in northern New South Wales, where Avalon has found work this harvest season. It's also where that young girl, behind the Instagram page that attracted Avalon to the farm work, is based. Heidi Morris is a local wedding photographer who downs her camera each year to drive a 20-tonne header during harvest. I've been doing seasonal work for about a year now, just over a year, and the interest has been overwhelming. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that just aren't sure how to get their foot in the door in the ag industry, and um, sort of creating a platform that makes it easier for those to get in touch and sort of get out here has um, made all the difference. In the 12 months since she's been operating Seasonal Work Oz, she cannot believe how many people, both farmers and potential future farm workers, have reached out to her. 
the demand for workers out here is uh, incredible. Like you're not only looking for people to jump on these machines, you're looking for people on the ground, you're looking for people in town. It's just become such a big thing, and I think it's. I think the the message, you know, if there's anyone out there that is willing to sort of come out and have a crack, come out. There's just so many opportunities. If you don't have any experience, it's not a problem. And um, as long as you've got a good attitude, there's a job here for you all the time. And the unlikely workforce that have come to sit on tractors and headers has had local farming communities delighting in their differences. Here's Coffs Harbour-born Avalon Newman again. I surfed my whole life, so all my friends were very shocked when I came all the way out to the country to be, like literally be in the middle of nowhere on a tractor, which is so random. And I honestly wouldn't have thought, I don't think my parents thought I would be doing that either, but it has been the best thing I've ever done. It, you are pretty out west and a lot of cowboys out and about, so it's very different. Like even the style of clothing took me a while to get into it. I was like wearing little tanks and like, yeah, bikinis and had my hair out and all that back home and now you just wear like boy clothes and yeah it's crazy cowgirl boots everything you like you name it. Chris Turner has spent the last 15 years as a qualified carpenter and now each year since 2015 he's left the job site to drive the 1500 kilometres north with his headers to Bungunya in southern Queensland. He caught the bug after only one season and now he operates his own contract harvesting business. Yeah, I was probably, I was a bit green, I'll admit that, um, yeah, there was, especially on the mechanical side of it sort of thing, like it, yeah, like, like operating them was good, but, you know, if something broke it, you know, took a bit to work out how to fix it and that, but, um, yeah, you're always learning in this industry. The best way to learn is when something's broken and you pull it apart and put it back together and hope it works again. Something that I'd always wanted to do, I'd, I'd never worked the hours, like, you know, yeah. You know, you might have been, you know, some days you're doing 10 to 12, some days you're doing 16, 18 hours. And it took a little bit to adjust to that. But, um, yeah, I sort of, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was something different. And, yeah, I've seen, you know, country that I've never seen before and different sort of farming methods. It sort of really opened my eyes up to, you know, not being around our little, you know, little area back home. It's people like Chris who come back year after year, that are worth their weight in gold to farmers. You get all sorts of people in this, um, in this game. Um, yeah, like people who've got no experience whatsoever to people that, you know, every year, you know, for 10 years have been coming out driving a chaser bin or, you know, it's a probably, it's a really good industry for networking and meeting people and it opens doors and, um, especially with the shortage on labour at the moment, like everyone out here is, Probably nearly every farm's looking for a worker. Um, you know, we've had it where we've had had workers come and work for us, and then they've actually they haven't stayed on the farm, but they've come back to the farm that we've worked on, and you know, done seeding for them and stuff like that, or drove a sprayer, or they've actually picked up full-time work on the farm that they, you know, drove a chaser in or a header on. What you're hearing sounds like it's from another world, but it's actually just beneath the waves off Queensland's Sunshine Coast. It's the sound of singing whales, snapping shrimp, which sound a whole lot like a sizzling barbecue, and amongst it all are some strange other noises going up and down in pitch. 
It's these noises that scientists from the University of Queensland are using to test the hearing of humpback whales as they migrate along the coastline north of Coulomb. Associate Professor Dr Rebecca Dunlop heads the project. G'day, I'm Owen Jarks and I'm chatting with Dr Dunlop. She hopes the findings will help scientists understand just what whales can hear, something they don't know a lot about at the moment. When it comes to baleen whales, we don't know a lot um, because they are big and very difficult to work with. We've never gone out and actually tested their hearing because they're, they're huge, it's, it's difficult to do. The way that we've set it up is that we have a team of volunteers on the hill and they track a group of whales as it moves down the coast. So I can see what they're seeing essentially. I can follow the track of the whale. The first thing we try and do is tag that whale which is very difficult and so to tag a whale you need to get extremely close and you put a suction cup acoustic tag on using a long pole and the good thing about humpbacks is they're migrating so they tend to pick a direction and pick a speed so you can quite accurately predict where they're going to end up in six kilometers down the coast i direct the source vessel to go there the source vessel sits there and then as they swim to about four and a half kilometers from that source vessel the, the signal gets turned on and then we literally just wait and see what they do and usually it takes a little bit you know they they might stop they might have a little bit of a listen they might deviate their course a little bit and once they've done that then we assume that they've heard the signal and then we make lots and lots of acoustic measurements and then we measure the noise we measure the level at which they heard that signal and we do it over and over and over again with lots of different frequencies and at the end of the day we should have some idea of their frequency range and sensitivity. Why is this so important to know? It's no new news that um, we're putting a lot of noise into the ocean. Naval sonar, we've got oil and gas industry with seismic surveys, we've got wind farm developments with pile driving, we've got shipping and of course we need to develop mitigation around those activities. So we need to develop policies to say, look, you know, they can hear this to this far away and to mitigate for any negative effects, we need to reduce the noise by this much or that much. And the fundamental piece of data to developing those policies is what a whale can hear. And that's the very piece that we're actually missing. And there's increasing evidence that noise from anthropogenic sources does have negative effects on their feeding behavior for example whales can stop feeding and leave that area on breeding behavior it can mask their communication signals so the evidence is overwhelming that noise has negative effects but what we need to do is control what we are doing and mitigate for those negative effects but the only way we can do that is if we understand what they're hearing um, and how far away for example they can hear these noise sources Carrying out this research is quite a big logistical exercise and Dr Dunlop says coordinating it is a pretty cool job. Look, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, we get to, you know, look quite cool when we're driving up plonking tags on whales and then, you know, we've got volunteers up on the hill, we've got one boat doing a focal follow, we've got another boat six kilometres ahead playing a source. Um, if you'd asked me 20 years ago if that would be my... My, my study, I would laugh and say, nah, that, uh, no way, but now I'm doing it. Yeah, I think I'm pretty cool. Professor Michael Node is on the boat up ahead playing noises to the whales so researchers can see how they react. The sort of sound we play is just a little tone that just goes up a little bit. It's all, almost like a little sort of whistle that goes up. And it's the sort of sound that they wouldn't necessarily hear normally underwater. And so what we think's happening from the whales' point of view is that they hear this and they're not quite sure what it is. 
It doesn't sound particularly threatening or anything, it's just that it's an unusual sound for them. And that's why they hesitate and just have a little, you know, a little listen to try and work out what the sound is, where it is. A lot of the time after they do that hesitation, they then just swim straight past the boat where we're playing the, the sound from. So it, it, it certainly doesn't worry the whales terribly much. Whales travel a huge distance when migrating. Why do these tests off the Sunshine Coast? Well, our, our study area is sort of from Noosa down to around about Perigian Beach. And so by the time, um, you know, Beck is trying to, um, you know, get tags on the whales and then start to follow the whales down the coast, usually where we do the actual sound experiment from is off Perigian Beach itself. We've been working at Perigian for a long time. We've, we've, been, we've actually been working there for... Well, it's more than 20 years now. So one of the big advantages for us working there is that we've got a very good handle on the behaviour of the whales as they move down the coast because we've, we've done so much work there. So, so Perigian is a great place for us to work um, because, of, because we know so much about the underlying whale behaviour as they move down the coast. Um, so it's a, it, it really is a perfect sort of experimental spot for this sort of work. University of Queensland professor Michael Node speaking to Owen Jacks about a research project studying migrating whales on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. You can read more about that story and all of the stories on today's program. You'll find the details at the Country Breakfast homepage on the RN website. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. There are currently over one trillion US dollars invested in impact funds worldwide, a sum that's lifted 20% over the last two years, according to the Global Impact Investing Network. And given the stewardship farmers have over vast swathes of land and waters, these funds have the impact to influence how food and fibre is produced. A local impact fund run by Victorian-based Kilter Rural has recently made one of the largest donations of environmental water to Murray-Darling Basin wetlands. Ewan Friday is Kilter's Chief Investment Officer. Ewan, welcome to Country Breakfast. Thanks, Clint. Great to be here. Can you actually break down what impact investing is and how interest in it has changed over the last, say, decade? Yeah, thanks, Clint. It is a good question, and there really isn't a defined or, you know, a, a concise definition. But generally speaking, the investment investor community think of impact investors uh, investments as those which deliver multiple outcomes. You know, so in addition to being a financial investment, they're also concerned with the investment delivering either on an environmental or a social front. And certainly it has changed over time in relation to the investments that we manage. You know, a, a good anecdote would be the fact that we've sort of been attending international ag investing conferences now for sort of half a dozen years or more. And in the early days, if there was a, se a session on ESG or impact investing, it was sort of like usually 3.30 on the last day of the conference when everyone had gone. And now it's really front and centre in just about every session that um, is included in the conference. So I think that really reflects the fact that um, capital allocators, you know, the large investors who put money to work in this space, really want to be sure that they're part of the solution rather than the problem. Um, that leads on so, to my next question, Ewan. Who or what are the main impact investors? 
Well, again, it sort of goes to definition. And I think that most mainstream institutional investors, um, certainly the ones that we deal with, and we may be, you know, not a, a particularly re representative sample just because of who we are, take a really keen interest in understanding the impacts of their investments um, with us, given the fact that we're sort of natural resource managers in, in land and water, it's mainly focused around environmental impacts. But yeah, so, you know, large institutions in Australia, uh, offshore, particularly uh, out of Europe, does seem to be a high priority for them. But we also work with some investors out of the US and they, they take an ever-increasing interest in this space as well. A couple of weeks ago on the show, the Australian Farm Institute was here explaining the, the importance for Australian agribusiness in adopting um, some really clear environmental, social and governance, ESG uh, uh, compliance and principles. So is impact investing a way for companies to bolster their ESG credentials or, or achieve ESG aims? Are they kind of related concepts? Well, they are related concepts. Um, I guess, um, you know, ESG reporting in itself doesn't necessarily uh, require the uh, the party that's doing the reporting to be making a positive impact. It's just sort of reporting on the impact that it is having, you know, in relation to the natural environment or socially or how its government stru governance structures are working. Uh, whereas an impact investment is one where there is an explicit expectation that the investment would deliver both financial uh, and environmental or social impacts. So they're sort of a related concept, but it's not necessarily that they achieve the same outcome. Well, let's go to an example. Non-farm investment in water assets in the Murray-Darling Basin has been a pretty controversial topic in the recent past, especially during times of water scarcity. Can you describe how it works at Kilter Rural? We have been managing water investments on behalf of investors since 2008. And the approach that we took to um, managing those investments right from the get-go was that we wanted to generate returns for investors by providing water products to farmers. And those product, products could be leases, they could be forward sales, they could be other sort of risk management products like carryover products and so forth. And so that's really been the way that we've uh, gone about um, managing investments uh, in this space. We also do run one water investment fund that is an explicit impact fund. So it has those twin uh, objectives of financial returns, as well as um, an explicit uh, targets for delivering environmental impact. How did you strike that balance with that impact fund, using the water assets to benefit the environment and support irrigated agriculture at the same time? Yeah, well, it's really quite a neat concept that underpins that fund. And it's one that sort of suggests that water can be available for both agriculture and the environment just at different times and it recognises the fact that wetlands tend to need water when it's wet because they've evolved to deal with you know droughts and flooding rains as this uh, this land uh, delivers but what they can't cope with is not getting a drink when it is wet and on the other hand farmers need water when it's dry because they're not getting a rainfall so they're needing uh, water from the irrigation system. So the way that that fund works is it makes an allocation to environmental watering up to 40% in a really wet year, which goes down to 10% in a really dry year. And so that way, you know, it delivers water to the environment when the opportunity cost is low. Um, and in years like this or last year, it's been able to make significant environmental water 
donations, which have then been uh, delivered to uh, endangered wetlands. So, yeah, that's that's basically the underpinning concept there. This is Country Breakfast, and my guest this week is the Chief Investment Officer at Kilta Rural, Ewan Friday. Ewan, what have been some of the key successes of those water donations for wetlands and riparian zones in the basin? Yeah, well, I mean, to date, the fund has um, supported the delivery of nearly 10,000 megalitres of environmental water donations since its inception back in 2015. Uh, There's been uh, 38 separate wetlands watered across 44 watering events. So some of those have received um, um, uh, waterings more than once. Uh, It's directly inundated um, over 2,500 hectares of wetland and improved sort of biodiversity outcomes over an area estimated at about 10,000 hectares. There's been some really uh, interesting specific projects, uh, introduction of uh, an otherwise extinct fish species called the Murray Hardy Head out into southwestern uh, New South Wales. There's been uh, uh, habitat restoration for an endangered bell frog. Um, one of the things that's really uh, we're proud of in relation to the fund is the sort of scientific rigour that goes into both planning these watering events and then the subsequent reporting to ensure that the resources are actually delivering um, meaningful environmental outcomes. But uh, yeah, there's been there's been many, and in this current um, financial year, water year, the fund will make the largest uh, environmental water donation or private environmental water donation in Australia's history. Uh, we're pretty sure by a long way, uh, delivering over 5,000 megalitres of water alone this year. And what's the mechanics of that? Do you partner with another group to undertake the environmental watering and report back the, the measurements they've taken? Yeah, absolutely we do, Clint. So, you know, we're water investment managers and we uh, created this fund in a partnership with the Nature Conservancy. They're one of the world's largest environmental NGOs. In fact, they may well be the largest. Um, And they're responsible for optimising the environmental outcomes. And they've uh, used uh, an organisation, a partner uh, with an organisation called the the Murray-Darling Wetlands Working Group. And they actually manage the on sort of ground delivery of water to these wetlands. And oftentimes, you know, that uh, requires working with private landowners. Uh, the, the fund tends to do watering events on private um, uh, uh, land holdings. It may involve pumping or access to water delivery infrastructure. And TNC then is responsible for the oversight of the scientific monitoring and reporting. Zooming back out to impact investing, you know, taken as a whole, do you think it can address other challenges like uh, climate change, things like agricultural runoff or preserving vegetation? Yeah, absolutely we do. And in fact, you know, that's one of the really exciting aspects of being working in this space. You know, agriculture, pretty much unlike just about every other industry, that if it's going to address climate change, other industries can just reduce their emissions. But in agriculture, we've got the opportunity to take Uh, management uh, initiatives that will sequester emissions that are already in the atmosphere, whether whether that be through revegetation or changing uh, land management practices to improve the capacity of the soil to hold carbon. So, yeah, I mean, on the farmlands uh, that we manage, we've got uh, projects registered with the um, ARF in relation to both revegetation and soil carbon projects. So we think, you know, there's there's a huge opportunity for agriculture to play a, a big role in that space.
At the same time, we're also currently um, just uh, developing a strategy which is focused on uh, cane farm investments in northern Queensland, in the Burdekin, which uh, aim to significantly reduce the dissolved inorganic nitrogen runoff and fine sediment runoff that is currently occurring in that part of the, part of the world. And there's, you know, there's really well understood farm management practices that can do that. So, you know, we're looking to um, buy and accumulate a country in that part of the world and implement those practices. Yep. So there's, 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 there's untold amount of opportunity in this space, Clint. You've been working in this area for well over a decade now. Off the back of the recent ACCC investigation into greenwashing by companies, how much of that do you see in your travels and conversations and what do you think is the key to tackling it? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, the key to tackling it really, Clint, is having, you know, scientifically robust frameworks for measuring measuring and reporting these activities. Um, you know, we at Kilter are really proud of the work that we've done in implementing a framework called Accounting for Nature, which is a, an outputs-driven reporting framework where you actually go and measure environmental condition of the assets that you're managing. So we have uh, methodologies across soil, native vegetation and um, fauna. Um, And um, those results, they're like financial accounts, uh, are then subject to external audit. So we can track the condition of the assets that we manage at a point in time. And most importantly, we can track the change in that condition over time. So yeah, that's that's the uh, the caution that I would sort of advise anybody who's looking into this space. They really need to be sure that if the the people who are making representations about what they're doing or the outcomes that they're achieving, they need to have credible, scientific, scientifically robust um, approach to um, to measuring and reporting on those activities. You said that Kilter adopts a, a certain model. Um, is there a role for the federal government here or, or international governments to work together to kind of harmonise how this uh, or these outcomes are reported and measured? Yeah, it's a great question and it's quite an exciting space. I actually had the good fortune last Friday to sit in a round table with the Honourable Tanya Plibersek on um, an initiative called TNFT, Task Force for Nature-Based Financial Disclosure. And it is um, a, an international initiative that is looking for ways um, to initially voluntarily, but um, down the track, mandatory reporting by reporting entities, that's companies or other you know, asset uh, owners uh, of the impacts and their dependencies on ecosystem um, services. So we think that that is something that um, could be really important in the long run in assisting the capital allocator community, the investors, make better decisions because they will know with much greater detail or uh, be much better informed about what the impact of the investments uh, that they make uh, are having. Kill to Rurals, you and Friday. In the show notes this week, I'll link to that report on the global scale of impact investing around the world. But my thanks go to Kath Macklin and Matthew Crawford for helping bring Country Breakfast together this week. And stay tuned for a morning of Impact Radio coming right up on ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.